It says sermon. <clears throat> so I guess there's one now. Jake, were you going to do that this week or was I? Pardon? You have the notes. Yeah, you could, you could give it yeah, yourself. All right, well, <clears throat> our passage this afternoon is the one that Jake read for us. And it's Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 38. And on the one-page handout that you have, the title is, What are the Chances, O Gentiles? Have you got that, as well as the eight-pager? The one-pager is the one that will guide you through and keeps me on track. And the eight-pager is one that I hope you'll take home and read, because it often puts in more articulate fashion uh, what I say more anecdotally here. And uh, there are notes on the text and lots of things there to ponder. And the main point in greater detail is to ask a question, what chance do we Gentiles have of being accepted by Jesus? Well, you'd think, well, pretty good. I mean, isn't that what church is all about? But that's not what I wrote. I wrote, what chance do we Gentiles have of being accepted by Israel's Messiah? And the answer is, according to our passage today, during Jesus' earthly ministry, slim indeed. That initial story about the Canaanite woman, it did not seem to go well for her initially, did it? After all, he's Jewish and the Jews' Messiah. But since then, since the earthly ministry of Jesus, and indeed before it was over, his earthly ministry was over, the chances are good with faith, which includes from the master's uh, table. So that's the main point. Um, I want to begin with a, a family story. Um, back in the 1950s, my parents moved um, invited them over, and they showed them pictures of the mountains. And of course, my parents had been to the mountains before, but it's always nice to see pictures of the mountains. And so Dr. and Mrs. Galilee were showing a picture of Lake Louise, which is one of the most pictographic places probably anywhere in the world. And Dr. Galilee was saying, and here's my family in the, in the foreground. This is my wife, and uh, these are my children. And here we are at Lake Louise. And my mother interrupted and said to my dad, Charles, look on the bench behind Dr. Galley's family. And on the bench behind Dr. Galley's family were my dad's parents who had come from Toronto and just happened to be at Lake Louise at the same time. And uh, it was like completely coincidental in a way. We are showing family pictures of one and in the background you look and sort of say, wait a minute, that's my family too. I can't help but think that that's what Matthew was thinking of when he was writing what he did in chapter 15. My friends, the story today, and I spent a good part of the week working through whether these passages or not. But the passage today is a family passage, and it's about Jews. And we're learning about Jews, and we're learning about how far in the background Gentiles are at this point, which includes, of course, us. 
So what are the chances, O oh Gentiles, uh, if you're like the Canaanite woman? In the picture. So I want us to take a look at three episodes. The, the second two are combined. like the feeding of the 5,000 that we read about a few weeks ago, is prefaced by a story of Jesus on the mountain. And what I'd like to do in our time together today is to look at these episodes individually. Episode one, which I've called Resisting the Canaanites, and then to draw some lessons from it, and then to look at episodes two and three together, Jesus on the mountain as healer and feeder of 4,000. So I want us to reread the story if we, if we can, verses 21 to uh, 28. And um, you can never read the story enough times. And the more slow thing, I know that story. All right, think again. We always learn more. So I'm reading from the translation that I have on that first page of the handout. And Jesus got away from there and withdrew into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And look, a Canaanite woman came out from those domains and kept on calling out saying, Oh Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely demon possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples approached him and kept on asking, saying, Send her on her way, for she cries out after us. In response, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But coming, she fell prostrate before him, saying, Lord, help me. In response, he said, It is not fitting to take the bread of the children of Israel and throw it to the dogs, throw it to the little dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs falling from the table of their master. Then Jesus said to her, O oh woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as, your, as you wish. And her daughter was healed from that hour onward. Now in, in Mark's version, Mark refers to the region as, uh, to the woman as Syro-Palestinian. But Matthew chooses three loaded words here, Tyre and Sidon and Canaanite, as if to say, this woman is an enemy of the Jews. The Canaanites in the Old Testament were the arch enemies of the Jews. And so Jesus has gotten away for a little R and R with his disciples, and he's in this territory, which is pagan, and a Canaanite woman comes out from there and keeps on calling out to him. Now the surprising thing about this Canaanite woman is she knows quite a lot. I mean, oh Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. For those of you who are Anglicans and who like to curie eleison, uh, oh Lord, have mercy upon me. She sounds like she's a Jew, but she's not. She has a problem. Have mercy on me. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. <clears throat> Jesus did not answer her a word. Now, at this point, um, it's clear that Jesus is hardly being super responsive. And we're going to come to that in a minute. Uh, and he persists. The disciples 
it's a little bit like, um, you know, if, you, if you're out for a walk and you don't have any change and there's a, there's a, there's a beggar who comes to you and you're, you're amongst a bunch of friends and, and it's kind of embarrassing. This person is asking you for money. Maybe it happens on the subway and you don't have anything in your pocket and you just kind of wish the person would go away. Maybe you move to the next train or across and they still come and they say, come on, man, you can do it, please. I just need anything, anything. And it gets very awkward. <clears throat> the disciples were feeling that way. So they said to her in verse 23, send her on her way, for she cries out after us. Most people think because of Jesus' response in verse 24, when he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that the disciples were saying, Lord, give the lady what she wants and get her out of our hair. But Jesus is principled. He's a Jew. And he says, no, I'm the Jewish Messiah. She comes and falls prostrate before him and saying, Lord, help me. Again, Jesus protests. It's not fitting to take the bread of the children and throw it to the little dogs. But then she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs falling from their master's table. And at that point, Jesus marvels at her faith and grants her her wish. I want to say a little bit about the background of the story. Um, there's a, a story elsewhere in Matthew that we've already preached from and already gone through a few weeks ago. It was in Matthew chapter 8. Um, um, yeah, in, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5. Uh, to 13, the story of the centurion's sick slave. And the parallels are amazing. It's basically the same kind of a scenario, only this is a, a wealthy man. He's a, a, he's a six-figure um, hoity-toity Roman who asks on behalf of another person. And um, the person persists and declares this amazing faith, and Jesus finally grants her wish, grants his, his wish. So as we look and, and try to glean some lessons from this, we're going to be taking a look also at Matthew chapter 8, which is on page 8 on the last um, page of the handout. But we're going to come to that in a minute. But I want to take us back to another passage because it too is important. And I just want to mention it in passing, and that's Joshua chapter 2. We've seen time and again in the New Testament, in Matthew in particular, where a knowledge of the Old Testament is vital. After all, this is Matthew's Bible. In, this, in the book of Joshua, and Joshua is the same name as Jesus, Joshua chapter 1 starts by talking about the tribe of Judah and how the tribe of Judah, and in particular Joshua, is going to bring salvation to the people. And by the end of uh, this initial episode, you sort of think, I get the story. Joshua is going to rescue the Israelites uh, on behalf of the tribe of Judah. Well, then things change dramatically, and we get a story about a Canaanite woman named Rahab. She is a prostitute. And much to our surprise, this woman Rahab, a Canaanite woman, becomes uh, crucial in the way in which Israel ends up taking the land. And I can't help but think that Matthew had the same thing in mind, and Jesus did as well, when he runs into this Canaanite woman. Here's Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, coming to redeem his people. In steps a Canaanite woman, and she gets into the act in a way that's admirable. She persists, pleading with Jesus to the point where Jesus says, okay, you're part of the program. 
Great is your faith, let it be to you as you wish. And this brings back recollection, I think, of Rahab and the scarlet cord and the pictures of Jesus as a means of salvation. You remember, she was saved from the destruction of Jericho when she held a scarlet cord out of her window, and the Israelites came and they, they conquered the place and they, they killed um, the people. But they spared Rahab because she had shown faith and her family. So there's an interesting little echo there. Um, and there are also echoes of the story uh, of stories that have to do with Elijah and Elisha. Let me get to what is the heart of the problem. In commenta commentators on this first passage, it's interesting how they are almost embarrassed by Jesus here, and you can see why. They said, well, Jesus was refusing the woman because he was testing her faith. It was a trick. He didn't really say no. Other commentators suggest, actually, that Jesus was um, kind of winking at the woman and the disciples. And they try to work their way around the problem that Jesus here is refusing the woman. But I think that that is obviously the point. This passage privileges the Jews. And I think that is the point. After all, Jesus is Jewish. And he is the Jewish Messiah. Membership among the covenant people has its privileges. Jesus came for them. And so I want to focus and simply mention that although there are things going on in the story that intimate and that are conciliatory, that Jesus is really um, Jewish. He's the Jewish Messiah, and we ought to take that seriously. But if you're still wondering and a little bit bothered about the tone of the passage, let me direct you to the second footnote in the outline, uh, where I say many commentators try to soften the Jesus here. But only three are likely, and they're only slight softenings. One is the structure of the story. And for that, I want to encourage you just to take a, a, a look at page four. And when you see the structure of the story on page, page four, the healing of the Canaanite woman's daughter, you'll see that um, Matthew is aware of the fact that this is problematic. We have four requests. The woman's request, to which Jesus gives a response, but notice the wording, I have it in quotes, and he answered. The disciples give a request, Jesus' response, and he answered. The woman requests again, and the response comes, and he answered. And then finally, the woman comes with this trump card request that shows her faith and shows her confidence and her persistence. And Jesus' response, Matthew then says, not and he answered, but then Jesus answered the woman. There's a then there. And Matthew didn't want to put Jesus' name on any of the previous uh, uh, responses. Jesus, of course, did respond. But it seems quite clear that Matthew wanted to use the name Jesus only when the woman received the kind of response that she did. And there's a, there's a kind of a perfect structure here. There are four requests, one on the woman's own part and the others on the disciples, as facetious and as kind of artificial and pragmatic as it was. The woman is pleading on behalf of her daughter, the disciples implicitly uh, and unwittingly are pleading on her behalf as well. And the number comes to seven, which is often a number of perfection. And you can see that in Matthew's gospel. 
If you turn to chapter 1, you'll see the 14 generations, which is 2 times 7. Excuse me. That's got something in my throat. So Jesus' response is the eighth, and it trumps number seven. So that's one of the conciliatory features. Matthew tells the story and admits that Jesus is a Jew and only came for the Jews. But then he says, the real Jesus comes out in the last statement. The second has to do with the dog. Uh, Gentiles were often called dogs, but there's a different word for dog used in this passage, and it refers to a domesticated dog. And so this isn't a wild dog that's outside roaming around the country, filthy and, uh, and, and feeding on dead animals and stuff. This is a domesticated dog, which there were in Hellenistic Judaism. So already, and here's the point, she is called a dog, but she's a little dog, and she's one that lives inside the house of the master. So she's already not quite at the table, but she's under the table. And she's under the table wanting to eat the crumbs that fall from the Jewish table proper. So there's a foreshadowing here of what is coming to the, to the Gentiles and what is coming to us. And then contrast the disciples. They wanted to get rid of her. They really didn't have any time. They just wanted the pragmatic, give her what she wants and get her out of our hair. But Jesus is principled and said, no, I came for a purpose. But when he sees the faith of the woman and her determination, he responds and grants her her request. So what can we Gentiles do to be accepted by Israel's Messiah? Well, if we've been living during the time of Jesus's early earthly ministry, uh, you'd have to pull something off like the centurion or like the woman. Let's just remind ourselves of the response of the centurion on, page, um, on the last page of the handout on page eight. You remember the story, I'll read it quickly. When he'd entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant has been lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, decline a table with Abraham and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into utter darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and grumbling and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Both the centurion and the women and the woman, I think, function as models for us Gentiles on how to gain the favor of a Jewish Messiah. And we've already seen that Jesus is well disposed. Not so much during his ministry, but if you read the Great Commission and you continue to read in Matthew, there's a growing attitude of openness and acceptance towards the Gentiles. But let's take a notice here quickly of some of the things that the Gentiles do, the centurion and the woman. It's the same for us today if we want to have a relationship with Jesus the Messiah. And of course, not surprisingly, what's in bold on the handout in the middle is faith. Jesus highlights their faith. 
In the case of the centurion, Jesus is amazed, which is a rare word. And here, Jesus turns to her, and at one moment, he's been kind of rebuffing her. But when he hears her and her testimony and her proclamation of his Messiahship and his lordship and her acknowledgement of her place in the, in the scheme of things, Jesus said, oh, woman, how great is your faith. It is granted to you. So one of the ways in which the Gentiles, including us, can win the favor of Jesus, win it with the help of the Holy Spirit and by his grace, is to show faith. Now, maybe you've been showing faith in Jesus and things aren't going particularly well. You're not getting the kind of response that you wanted. Things aren't happening as quickly as you wanted. Some of the problems that you were hoping Jesus would solve haven't been solved. And you really feel discouraged. Well, friends, take heart from the woman. The disciples rebuffed her. Jesus said no, but at least Jesus hadn't yet turned her away. Matthew Henry in his commentary says that Jesus' heart can be warm towards you even when he has a frown on his face. And the important thing is not to worry about the reaction of Jesus because we know who Jesus is. He's loving, he's compassionate. And even though there are things that he might do in response that might make us lack confidence, we're to forge ahead and we are to hold fast, as it says at the top of this uh, handout in the second paragraph, or in the second quote, faith is holding on to Jesus for dear life, like a drowning person to a life raft, believing that Jesus is good, even when his words do not seem to be. It can never, ever be wrong to put your faith in Jesus, no matter what your perception is of the kind of response that you're receiving. And that was proven at the cross. I mean, he died on the cross for your sins. It's a done deal. He was raised from the dead in testimony of the fact that your sins have been forgiven. So even if things aren't going well emotionally, know that Jesus cares and that he responds in faith. Two of the other things that are characteristic of the centurion and of the Canaanite woman are persistence. She wouldn't take no for an answer. And a little bit like Jacob wrestling with that angel, you can almost hear Jesus say to the woman um, what God said to, to, uh, to Jacob, you have striven with both God and man and have prevailed. You are a fighter. You're not one to go away quickly. So persistence is a good way of showing one's faith. And then knowing one's place and that of Jesus. Yes, Lord, you're right. I'm a dog under the table. But even us dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from your table. And he looks at her and says, this woman has an amazing attitude, has an amazing posture of faith. So that's the story of the Canaanite. I want to draw another implication quickly before I go on to the second two episodes, and that has to do with Jewish identity. It seems to me as though if the point of the passage is that Jesus is Jewish, we ought to ask what our attitude is towards Jews. I think I was in my 20s before I realized that Jew is not a bad word. I had a friend in graduate school who was a Jewess, and I wouldn't call her a Jewess. I said, you know, a person of Hebrew faith, and I, I would, I would, ref she said to me one day, you think Jew's a bad word, don't you? I said, well, no. She said, well, yeah, you kind of do. <laughs> Jew isn't a bad word. Call me a Jewess. That's what I am. And friends, Jew is a good word. And if you have an issue with somebody because they are Jewish, you have an issue with Jesus because he was and is Jewish. 
These are the people who stand at the fountainhead of our faith. And if anyone had a right to be anti-Jewish, I suppose, it was Jesus. Because in this portion of Matthew's gospel, we've read episode after episode after episode where the Jews are opposing Jesus. They're calling him a demon. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to, uh, to, to, to destroy him. And yet Jesus persists in his commitment to the Jewish people. My friends, it's always been characteristic, or at, its, at the church's best, it has never lost its vision of reaching out to Jews and wanting to share the message that Jesus is the Messiah with Jewish people. It's a tough slog. There's a lot of opposition. But if Jesus persisted in the love that he had for his own people, so too ought we. And then I want to just mention as well that some people accuse the New Testament of being anti-Semitic. And indeed, in the Gospels, Jesus and many people are hard on the Jews, which is why some people prefer the term Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders of the day, to the criticism of Jews. And yet to call the New Testament anti-Semitic is anachronistic. That means it's, it's, uh, it's, it's too late for that. Because Christianity began as a Jewish movement. And one of the things that you'll notice about Jews dialoguing with Jews and having arguments in their own day is that they didn't pull any punches. If the Jews were arguing amongst themselves, they would say, I think you're wrong. I think you're all wet. And the other person could back and say, no, I think you're just, you know, you're, you're all wet as well. So my point is this, the seemingly anti-Jewish rhetoric that we find in the Gospels is in-house Jewish rhetoric. And it's typical of what took place in Judaism. Christianity began as a Jewish sect. And so anti-Semitism in the New Testament is a misnomer. These are Jews arguing with each other, which they often do to great benefit, because if you, if you argue, somebody comes up usually with the best answer. So my friends, there's a strong lesson here for us to love and respect and honor the Jewish people, to have a heart for their evangelism, and to show perseverance and patience in the midst of the resistance that they offer to Jesus being the Messiah. Episodes two and three. I'll um, read them um, again. And there. Notice that for later. And many crowds approached him, having with them ones lame, blind, maimed, mute, and others. And they cast them at his feet. And he healed them. He did so in such a way as to joyously astound the crowds upon seeing the mute speaking, the maimed whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now comes a story that sounds familiar to the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus, summoning his disciples, said, I feel sorry for the crowd, for in their remaining with me for three days now, they haven't had anything to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry in case they faint on the way. And his disciples said to him, where are we in a remote place to get so many loaves as to feed so big a crowd? And Jesus says to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven and a few small fish. You just hard to imagine that the disciples aren't kind of recognizing a certain deja vu here, but they, they aren't. And signaling the crowd to recline on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke and gave it to his disciples and the disciples to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the excess of broken pieces they took up were seven baskets full. 
And those who ate were 4,000 men, not including women and children. And after sending off the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. What is the background and the point of the story? Well, the first thing that strikes us is that this is very much like the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And the question then comes up, why would Matthew, with all of the episodes and stories that he could have used of Jesus, tell one that's so much the same? Well, one of the characteristics of Jewish literature is that if something is included twice, it's there not because uh, there were originally two episodes that were maybe independently edited or something. It's told to you twice because it's important. And so here we have a picture of Jesus looking at his people who are ill-equipped and saying, guys, I know your resources are short, but you can do this with my help. And so the church, and earlier at that time, the synagogue, would trust in God, and lo and behold, amazing things happened. So here again, we're reminded of the, the resources of the church. They are bountiful, even if it's only a few fish and seven loaves, because Jesus is the one who works supernaturally. Okay, we're in the home stretch, and I want you to hang with me here for a minute because there's another really important point. Earlier in the week, and through all of the week, when I was going through the commentaries, there was a debate between people asking whether these two episodes are Gentile episodes or Jewish episodes. And I finally come down on the side of them being Jewish episodes. Not that that really matters, but it does kind of explain the point. The point isn't that Jesus kind of recognized that the Canaanite woman was okay, and then he decided to be nice to Gentiles, and he healed them by the, by the, by the hordes, and then he, he had his own separate feeding of Gentiles. The crowd in the, in, in the third instance are probably predominantly Gentiles, but the point is it still remains Jewish. And the difference between this story and the story of the feeding of the 5,000 comes in verses 19 and 21, and the effect that it has on the way that we read the story. Jesus comes alongside the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee reminds us that, yes, Jesus is kind of coming alongside Gentiles, but the story remains Jewish. He goes up on the mountain, and he's sitting there. Now, in previous, uh, in, in previous sermons on the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen that when Jesus goes up onto the mountain, he's like a Moses, right? And so Jesus goes up onto the mountain like Moses, and then it says he was sitting there. And they had a tradition whereby the teachers themselves there would be somebody who was actually said to sit in the seat of Moses. And he would interpret the traditions and interpret the laws for the benefit of the Jewish people. It was called the Oral Torah. And there was a Pharisee who sat in the seat of Moses and who had a lot of authority. So Jesus goes up onto the mountain and he was sitting there. Well, you expect to what comes next is the law from Mount Sinai, right? Uh, Jesus is going to give some instructions like he did on the northern shore of the, sea of, of the Sea of Galilee. He's going to give them the Beatitudes or something. But no, even though he's sitting there in the posture of a teacher, crowds approach him. They're all maimed and mangled and lame and blind. And they cast those people at his feet. 
and he healed them. And as a result, they marveled. And then the next thing we know, uh, and we know it well because there was a previous story about that, is Jesus feeds them. And he feels sorry for them. Some Jews, mostly Jews, but some Gentiles. I think he's feeling sorry more for the Jews probably in the crowd than the Gentiles at this point. So what is the point? Well, the point is, is that Jesus here has fulfilled one more Old Testament motif or one more Old Testament figure, and that is the figure of Mount Zion. Uh, where it talks about Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. There are two stories in the Old Testament that talk about God going up on Mount Zion, which is in Jerusalem, and in the end times, all kinds of people, the scattered, the, the diaspora, the, the Jewish people who are scattered, and the Gentiles as well, they come pouring to him on the mountain, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths, it says in verse 2. So Jesus and Matthew here, I think, are thinking of Jesus going up on the, on the mountain, not this time as Moses, but this time as a prophecy about the future of Zion. And Jesus is filling in for Zion. Notice what it says in verse, uh, in the, um, if you flip over onto the, um, onto the eighth page, um, Verse 6, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted and the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. The point is this. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament that talks about Mount Zion being this magnet and people are going to come to Mount Zion and are going to get fed and healed and they're Jewish people who've been separated from their people and spread out to the nations of the world and Gentiles also are going to come and everybody comes and everybody is healed and everybody is fed. Well, Jesus is on the mountain and he's sitting there. It's a little reminder, he's already taught you what he wants you to know from the Mount, Sermon on the Mount and so on. But now comes that part of the prophecy when he heals people and he feeds them. My friends, the story and the point ends up with a story and a point about Jesus. Jesus is not only the new super Moses. He's not only God. He's not only Jeremiah. He's not only Isaiah. In this case, he fulfills a prophecy about a mountain. And he's the Zion figure, the one to whom in the last days people will come streaming and find that their, their appetites are satisfied and their, and their wounds are healed. What began as a story about a would-be chance of a Canaanite woman is your story, my friend. Are you going to gamble on Jesus? If you've been living in Jesus' time, your chances would be slim. But now that the Great Commission has gone out and the Holy Spirit has been poured out onto all of the nations, that Zion image is being filled. And Jesus is at the top of Mount Zion saying, if you let me be the magnet that draws you, I will satisfy what it is that you need. And that happens when we come to know Jesus as Savior. But so long as we live in a fallen world, we continue to experience hurt. We continue to suffer hunger. But as with this story, 
the further down the road that you get, the better it becomes for us Gentiles as well as the scattered Jewish people. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. What can you as a Gentile do to be part of the picture? Put your faith in him. Be persistent. Look to him as the only way, as though there's no other Savior to be found anywhere else. Fall under his table and ask for the crumbs to fall, and you'll find yourself seated at the table alongside the Jews and others whom he has redeemed by his grace. Amen.